decir. Just so you know, it was on the slides, but we'll be taking the Lord's Supper after the sermon, and um, we have those on the back table there if you didn't receive that or pick one of those up on the way in. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. You're so good to us. So many things to be thankful for. Help us just to, to be able to slow down and be still and know that you are Lord. You are God. You sit upon your throne and you do as you please in the heavens and on earth. And no one can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? You are holy. You are righteous. You are just. And you are merciful and gracious in sending your son to take upon flesh to keep the covenant between God and man that we have failed to keep and then to pay for our sins where we have broken that covenant on the cross. We have so much to be thankful for. And Lord, I pray that you would as we've already had a wonderful time of worship this morning as a church family, I pray that you would continue to bless as we open your word. Give us understanding, help me to be clear. And may your truth resound. Guard your people, Lord, from anything false I may say, as I'm a fallible man. But your word is infallible and inerrant and perfect in training us for righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that, that we would submit ourselves to your word. And may we find our happiness, not only in all that you've done for us and all that you are, but that we would express that happiness in, in you through obedience. Bless our time now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, a couple of weeks ago, I preached on 1 Peter 3. And I want to read uh, verses 18 through 22. And then I want to clear up just a couple of things that, that maybe I wasn't clear enough on. Uh, one, one thing is when you're preaching on a difficult passage, you want to be as clear as possible. But at the same time, you have time limits on, on how long you can go. Um, and so I want to clear up just two things, but first I want to read the passage. Verse 18 of chapter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to, the, which 
corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I dealt with the last time, I dealt with um, the passage where it speaks of Jesus going to the spirits in pit prison and proclaiming to them um, what I believe is his victory over death on behalf of his people, the victory that God had over the fallen angels. And, and we looked at some passages. There were two main um, viewpoints on this, on these verses, and we looked at, uh, at those, and then I told you which one I held. Um, but there were two, two things that came up afterwards, and I want to just clarify that. Number one was in Genesis 6, 1 and 2, it states this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And I, and I told you why I believe that, that speaking there in verse 2, the sons of God of angels, because of how that, that phrase is used in the Old Testament. It's always talking about angels there. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to clarify is, is that the sons of God title is not given to fallen angels. They lose that title when they fall into sin and they become fallen angels in the Bible or, or demons or you know, demonic principalities or powers or whatnot. But in the passage, the, the phrase there, the sons of God is used before they actually commit the sin in the passage, right? And so um, the, the text tells us that the, the title sons of God is given to let us know that, that that is angels, right? And then the text tells us how they sinned with human women. And now after the angels sinned, they would have lost the title sons of God. So I just wanted to clarify that. Once, an, once the angels have fallen, they're no longer t given the title sons of God. Um, they would be demons or fallen angels. The second, the second thing that, that was brought up was in this passage, the timing of, of when Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Um, and so I just want to give, um, as I said, there's only so much time you have when you're preaching and especially a difficult passage, you just can't cover everything. And so I appreciate the questions and the, and the, the opportunity to clarify. Um, the timing of Jesus's proclamation, okay? So, so let me just say it again. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patient, patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And so here, here's what I want to say. There's two primary views on when he proclaimed. Now, this, this, I don't know if you could call it a nuance, but it, it's, there's two primary views. Number one um, is after his death, but before his resurrection, Okay. The second is after his res resurrection, but before his full ascension. Okay, so those are the two primary views of when Jesus went and proclaimed. Um, they're both they're both good views um, linguistically, and the difficulty is in how you interpret the words in which he went. Okay, that's that's where the difficulty lies in which view you take, how you translate or how you come to terms with the phrase in which he went. The first view, um, after his death, but before his resurrection, um, 
takes that in, in the spirit, meaning without flesh, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. You see that? So that he might bring us to God, verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went. So in which he went will be connected to spirit. Okay? And so that's how that, that view is, is come about. Um, the second view takes it that the order is put to death in the flesh, then made alive in the spirit, meaning what? Resurrected, right? Made alive in the spirit, made resurrected. And so in a resurrected state, flesh and spirit, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's how the second view comes to that, because of how you interpret in which he went, right? He either in which he went in spirit or in, in which he went after the spirit made him alive, which would be resurrection. So those are how those two views come about. So linguistically, it's, it's difficult, and both of those are legitimate linguistically. But here's, here's why I hold to the second view. The, the view that Jesus went to the spirits in prison to proclaim victory after his resurrection in flesh and spirit. I hold to this, not, not only can you hold to this linguistically, but I, I hold to it because of the, the context of what I think Peter's saying here. I, I hold because, because the proclamation that Jesus makes here to the spirits in prison is one of victory. Okay, and so verse 21, the second half of verse 21 and 22 says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, Jesus, after his resurrection, in flesh and spirit, I believe, and in victory over death, went and proclaimed victory over the fallen angels. And at the finale of his ascension, he sat down at the right hand of his father, and all of those were made subject to him. Okay. And, and in his position, all angels, all authorities, all powers are made subject to, sub, subject to Jesus. And in my mind and understanding of the text, if Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison before resurrection, then the victory really hasn't been expressed, in my opinion. Right. Because the victory in the New Testament, the victory is proclaimed by the resurrection. Right. And so that's why I hold contextually to the second option that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, and after resurrection, but before ascension, full ascension, he proclaimed his victory that they would see visibly now um, over, over death and over them trying to thwart God's plans. Okay? Now, difficulty is not over. <laughs> So now, now I, I told you next time we, we look at this passage, I want to deal with another difficult aspect of this passage here at the end of chapter 3. And you, you've probably picked up on the difficulty if, um, if you're a good evangelical Protestant Baptist or whatever you are. Um, you've, you've picked up on the difficulty already. Um, in, in chapter 3, um, let, me, let me start in verse 20. It says, because they formally did not obey, that's the, the spirits in prison did not formally obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, we got a problem? Andrew's going to finish the message. <laughs> You've been waiting for this day your whole life, Andrew. <laughs> 
him on or something? I heard crackle. Okay. All right. So in verse 20, it says, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. Okay. And then it says baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is, this is another difficulty in the passage. At, at least it, it, at, at the surface level, it's difficult, okay? What is Peter saying about, about baptism here? Because it's important what, what Peter says about baptism because Peter's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as all the rest of the biblical authors do. So the struggle that we immediately see on the surface level is where he says baptism, which now corresponds with this, now saves you. Okay? Now, we understand, and, and I could preach a sermon on justification by faith alone, and we could go through just tons and tons of passages that speak to that truth. Right? Salvation is by grace, not by works, not by anything you've done. Um, and so we understand that, that a person is saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, right, for the glory of God alone. There's, there's no ceremony, there's no religious rite or works that can save someone. And the, the New Testament is absolutely clear on this point, absolutely clear. However, this passage has been misunderstood by some to believe, by many, to believe that the waters of baptism are what saves, okay? So they teach that the waters of baptism are what regenerates a person. And so we would call that baptismal regeneration, which is a doctrine that some teach, baptismal regeneration. And they, this is a passage that they use to uphold that view of baptismal regeneration. It's, it's not correct. It's a false teaching. And it leads one to believe that someone can only be saved if they've been baptized. Well, we know from the thief on the cross that baptism is not necessary to see Jesus in paradise, right? So baptism is not necessary, but this, this passage is used to, to construct that doctrine and then teach that to the followers. So what I want to do, Lord willing, in order to properly understand what Peter is saying is break this passage down into a, couple of, into a few segments. So, number one, it's important for us to understand what Peter says here when he says baptism, which corresponds to this. Okay? Um, the phrase corresponds to this is one Greek word. That's one Greek word. Which corresponds to this, or corresponds to this is one Greek word, um, and it's, it's antitupon, if, you, if you're interested. It means copy or counterpart. A counterpart or figure pointing to that's what it means so baptism which is a figure that points to um, makes the transition here to the salvation in Christ this word antitupon is where we get the theological term antitype you've heard that probably if you've heard sermons or read commentaries um, an antitype which, which in the New Testament describes an earthly expression of a heavenly reality Okay, an antitype is an earthly expression that teaches a heavenly reality or a, an analogy that teaches a spiritual truth. So, so Peter is saying to us this, the preservation in the ark of those who believed God is analogous 
to the salvation believers have in Christ. Okay? And I, I'm going to explain this. I'm going to explain this statement that Peter is making here. But Peter's saying this, the preservation in the ark of those who believe God is analogous to the salvation believers have in Christ. Okay? Now, the, the, the second thing I want to do is I want us to understand what the word baptism means or baptize. That word baptize is the Greek word baptizo, okay? And this is what it means, to immerse. It means to immerse, okay? It's, it's a word that wasn't translated. It was transliterated, and they just baptize. Um, and so um, to be immersed in the Bible is not restricted to water, okay? The, the religious ceremony of baptism is one of water, physical water, but the word baptizo or immersed is not restricted to water. For, for example, you can be baptized into suffering. You can be immersed into suffering. Jesus said in Luke 12, 50, I have a, baptized, a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about going and getting baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. He had already done that. And so in Luke 12, 50, he's saying, there's a baptism that I have to go through and great is my distress about going through this baptism. And what he was talking about is there's an immersion of suffering that I'm going to have to go through when I go to the cross. I'm going to be immersed in suffering, great suffering. And we know how great a suffering because he sweat drops of blood when he knew he was about to walk to it. So to be baptized or immersed is not, is not restricted to water. All Christians are baptized into the Holy Spirit. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. By the way, Jesus didn't baptize a single person as far as the water ceremony. But Jesus has an immersion upon all believers that will be with the Holy Spirit and fire, right? And fire always represents either, either judgment or purification, okay? John could only perform baptism of water. We can only perform baptism of water. But Jesus has a baptism that he baptizes all his believers with the Holy Spirit and fire, which is an, a, a picture of the inner reality of what Christ has done to each Christian. It's, it's actually a picture of regeneration. How are we immersed into the Holy Spirit? Well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to regenerate us, to adopt us, to sanctify us, to fill us, and to seal us. So we are immersed into the Holy Spirit. So to be, so to be baptized means to be immersed, okay? And that's important for us to understand. It's just like the word uh, justified, right? Paul uses it differently than James. Okay, Paul uses it differently than James does. The word baptism is not restricted to the wa to water. So let's think about what Peter is saying here. Is Peter talking about water baptism? 
says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And then Peter adds this statement here to clarify what he's not talking about. And he says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, what? The salvation that Noah and his family enjoyed, okay? Baptism, immersion, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. What's he saying there? I'm not talking about water, right? I'm not talking about water that when you enter it and you come out, the dirt's washed off. Now, he didn't have to add that. But he added that to clarify that he's not talking about the water baptism ceremony. And he says, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So what, here's the thing. If he's not talking about water baptism, which he's not, because he tells us there, I'm not talking about the kind of water or the kind of baptism that shakes the dust off you, right? When you get in and get out. So what is Peter talking about being immersed into? Well, I want us to think about what was the means of salvation in both scenarios. Both scenarios, what's the means of salvation? The water in the days of Noah was what brought death. Okay? The water was, was nothing about salvation. The water equaled death in, the, in Noah, in the, in the story of Noah and the flood. What kept Noah and his family from being put to death by the water was the ark. Right? It was the ark. The ark is what brought Noah and his family safely through the judgment of the flood. So what in the New Testament... Or who must we be united to or who must we be immersed into in order to pass safely through the judgment of God? We know the answer there. Christ. You must be united to Christ or in Christ, the New Testament says, by faith, right? So we must be in Christ. In, in the picture of Noah and his family, there was an ark that they were in. They were immersed into the ark, and the arks kept them from judgment. The water equaled death. In, in the New Testament picture, or the, the analogy here, is that Jesus Christ is our ark, right? And through his resurrection, which is what Peter says in the passage, through his resurrection, we pass safely through judgment. Now, what, what gets us immersed into the saving vessel? What gets us immersed into the saving vessel? What put Noah and his family into the ark? Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what put Noah in the ark? Here's what put Noah in the ark. He believed God. How, do you, how are you united to the saving vessel in Noah's story? By believing God. And believing God that something was about to happen that had never happened before. And then building something that no one had ever seen before. And yet he believed God and those who didn't get into the ark, did not believe in God, and they fell to judgment. What puts us in Christ? 
What immerses us into Christ unites us to Christ. You know the answer, faith. By faith in Christ, you are declared blameless. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are made one with him. We are Think about this. We are clothed. We are immersed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our unrighteousness because that's been paid for. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We are enveloped, if you will, and immersed into the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and therefore we can be blameless before God and pass through the judgment safely. So faith is what immerses us into the saving vessel of God, which is Jesus Christ. So, so what is Peter saying? What is Peter saying? He's saying this. Just like the ark saved Noah and his family from the earthly temporal judgment of God's flood, so Christ saves you from the eternal judgment of God. Your, your, your immersion into Christ through his resurrection, which what? Proclaims victory over death and sin. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because we're united to Christ in faith and immersed into him and his work and his personhood, we pass through the judgment. The flood, the ark, and Noah's family is an earthly picture of a more important heavenly and spiritual reality. And that's what Paul's, Peter's saying here. Water baptism is a religious ceremony that is uh, merely an expression, a physical picture of the spiritual reality that has occurred in the believer. But Peter here is speaking of the reality, not the picture. He's saying the picture was Noah and the ark. The reality is faith in Jesus. Putting your faith in Christ is an appeal to God for a clear conscience. The guilt of sins removed by Christ. The covenant between God and man kept for us by Christ. A clean conscience before God. I, I preached on this a, a few weeks back. You'll remember. A true clear conscience can only come through reconciliation in Jesus Christ. It can only truly come. You can have surface clear, clear conscience really. But I'm talking about laying your head on your pillow and knowing that there is no guilt hovering over you that can only come in Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. So, so let, me, let me just, let me close with this, this point of application. I, I, I want us to see what our true source of salvation is. Peter says it, our true source of salvation is not the things of this world. It's not horses and chariots. It's not the things that rust will corrode and moth will eat and thieves will steal. Our true source of salvation is Jesus Christ. And oh, that we would do well to dwell on that truth all day, every day. Amen? There's so many distractions and there's so many things that are promising what only God can give. And God always and only gives it in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful truth that we as Christians have been immersed in Christ. And he is our ark. We find safety in him. We find reconciliation in him. We find redemption in him. We find blamelessness in him. We find atonement for our sins in him. We find full righteousness in him. We find satisfaction in him. We find happiness in him. We find joy in him. We find love in him. Everything that we need and everything that we can find satisfaction in and joy is in Jesus. And because of your grace and your mercy and your love and because of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are immersed into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen, Lord. Thank you so much. Amen.